Faith matters. Assalamu alaikum. You are listening to The Voice of Islam, where we bring you Faith Matters, a program devoted to taking questions on a variety of contemporary and religious issues, where you, our listeners, set the agenda by the questions you ask. You can send in your questions at faithmatters at voiceofislam.co.uk. And if you have Sky Digital, this program is also available for viewing on Muslim Television Ahmadiyya, channel 787. Alternatively, you can open it up on YouTube. Go to YouTube, put in the words MTA Online 1, Faith Matters, the name of the program, and the question you're after. And if you don't find the answer right there, you know what to do. Email us on The Voice of Islam on Faith Matters at voiceofislam.co.uk. With that, I'm absolutely delighted to welcome two very eminent members of the Amnia Muslim community to the Faith Matters program this morning. Assalamu alaikum, gentlemen. Welcome to Faith Matters. For the benefit of our viewers, to my immediate right is the very respected Salim Ahmed Sahib. He has a distinguished service in the legal profession and he's currently serving as an employment judge in the East Midlands region of the United Kingdom. Assalamu alaikum. And to his right is, of course, a regular on Faith Matters, but it's always a pleasure to welcome back once again to Faith Matters, of course, Dr. Zaid Khan Sahib, who's the president of the Qazar Board of Jurisprudence of the Amdi Muslim community here in the UK. Assalamu alaikum, Dr. Right, Zaid Sahib, welcome. Very nice to see you again. Will, it's always a pleasure, isn't Thank it? It's you. nice Thank to uh, <laughs> make a regular meeting of this, which we do. And we'll kick straight off with the first uh, question, which comes from Mikhail Rose. Um, thank you very much, Mikhail, for your question and um, thank you for your kind comments about the Faith Matters program. Gentlemen, this first question relates to verse 48 from chapter 51 in the Holy Quran, where God says, and I'll read this, the English translation, and I quote, And the heaven we built with our own powers, which are being referred to as Aydin, and indeed we go on expanding it, and this is as Muzeun. Now, these, uh, the point uh, Mikhail is raising is that there are some um, who raise an allegation that Muslims have forced a different meaning on this particular word. He's referring to the word expanding, that this was somehow a later addition in later translations. And in alleging this, they often put down to that Muslims have somehow taken, for example, that the word expanding was discovered in 1929 by Edwin Hubble and that as the universe is expanding, this was something that Muslims adapted into the Holy Quran. He then says that the, those who criticize uh, Muslims for this, quote to earlier translations of the Holy Quran, where the word specifically, the word expanding, has been not used and other words have been used in its place. His simple question is this, uh, how do we respond to this allegation? And perhaps, uh, Salim Saab, if I could start with you on this, I think it'd be interesting to, right at the outset to start off with the basic definition of the word from the Arabic into the English, perhaps using uh, the dictionary, if you like, uh, to actually explain what it yes. means. Well, the, the word musi'un, uh, um, and it's important to remember that the Holy Quran's text mm -hmm. is unchanging. Uh, translations may change, but it is always important to go to the, the, the actual word. And the allegation here is that Musi'un was uh, translated in a different way, and, and this is, it is true, there are some uh, translations, Blasher, for example, translated as we give generously. 
and there were others who translated it in, in, in similar ways. Molana Sherali Saib said that uh, referred to it as having vast powers. But the question is not how it is translated at the time, but whether or not the original word has the ability to be translated in the way that it, that it mm -hmm. is. And I think there's a very interesting point made by Maurice Bukele in his excellent book called The Bible, The Quran Science. And if I can quote from that, he, he, he deals with this in, in his book and he says this, that heaven is the translation of the word Samar, and this is exactly the extraterrestrial world that is meant. So we're talking about the heavens, we're not talking about anything else. And we are expanding it as a translation, he says, of the plural present particle Musi'una, of the verb Ausa, meaning to make wider, more spacious, to extend and to expand. Okay, so, so there, there is, it's the, quite clear. Absolutely, the so the, 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 the verb w which is related to Musi'un, does mean to make wider, more spacious, to extend and to expand. And of course, in the light of the discovery, it now seems entirely appropriate to say, well, this is what the Holy Quran was saying. Um, so I, I don't think it, th there's any uh, moving of the goalposts. Yeah. I think it's simply that the translation at the time uh, was viewed in the light of the discoveries that were available at the time. There's nothing to suggest that the Holy Quran which is the final word of, of Allah the Almighty, uh, can and ought to be interpreted in different ways in the future. Dr. Zaid Saab, just to bring you in on this, I think there's an important point here as well that Salim Saab has highlighted about translations being of, of that time of what's known to the human sure. mind, if you like. But the word, this is, we believe the Holy Quran to be the word of God. And this word, uh, um, of Musiant, this was actually quite specifically, as we've seen, tr is translated as expanding. And we believe as Muslims that it's the Holy Quran in its original Arabic form, which is the unaltered text, and it re remains as it was over 1400 years ago as revealed to the Holy Prophet of Islam. Indeed, upon. the uh, text of the Holy Quran has been preserved according to the promise of Allah that He would preserve it. And certainly, there is, has been no argument that there has been any change and I think what Salim Sab has, has given us is an important lesson in, in the grammar of the word Museun which actually describes what we now know is that there is an expanding universe and as you say uh, 7th century there was <clears throat> no understanding of what the universe was even 19th century there was this not this concept until actually Hubble discovered that with, with, uh, with the telescope but what we also have to understand, uh, importantly, is that the creation of the universe is dealt by the Holy Quran as the only scripture that deals with this subject and deals with it in, in great detail. And of all the theories that now we know about the Big Bang, the black hole, uh, and the Big Crunch now as well, these are all theories, these are all theories that have now been understood by man and have been proved by fact and by science. But when you refer back to the Holy Quran, these are actually mentioned in great detail. The universe, Allah says, uh, uh, was a closed up mass and the word used is ratkan in, in that sense. And now we understand that ratkan has two connotations of having complete darkness or a single entity. And this is an apt description of what we now know as a black hole. Mm -hmm. So to say that it was not translated as a black hole 
7th, 8th, 9th century does not mean to say that that was not in the Holy Quran at that time. It certainly was in the Holy Quran, but the understanding of man is now able to comprehend and understand this subject more fully. In the same way, Museum, vastness is, is a subject that can be linked to this subject of an expanding universe. You know, the 7th, 8th century, people had a, a dilemma. Was the universe finite or was it infinite? Mm. And this uh, argument raged on until we come to the subject of Hubble and his expanding universe, which fits entirely into the description of the Holy Quran that when there was a big bang, there was a sudden eruption of the mass, and that is how the universe continued to expand in that sense. And the next question is, what is going to be the future of the universe, which the Holy Quran actually does deal with. Allah says that we shall roll up the heavens and the earth, like the rolling up of, of a document, you see. And now scientists are saying that this is the big crunch theory, that the gravitational forces will eventually prevail, and rather the expansion going on, it will be rolled back into a single entity once again, the black hole. So this is the marvels of the Holy Quran. It was revealed at a time when these things were obscure to man. It was revealed to a man who could not read or write. You know? So these are the, the miracles of the Holy Quran, in that it contains revelations, prophecies, which have become to be understood more fully, more accurately by man, and therefore is able to interpret the Holy Quran to a greater understanding in that respect. So the Holy Quran wording has never changed. It is the understanding of man that is becoming greater, that he's able to understand more fully. And as Salim Sabah said, the, the grammar actually of the word Museum has always been there, and now it is understood in a different light in that respect. Gentlemen, Jazakumullah. <coughs> I think that's very clear uh, answers as ever. And uh, my thanks also to Mikhail. And of course, Mikhail, I, I think one of the other areas often we can point to is that the first chapter of the Holy Quran, the Surah also refers to God Almighty as Lord of all the worlds, not just a single world. So there in itself is a complementary sort of uh, element within the Holy Quran to this particular chapter as well. And uh, for those who criticize Islam, they need to look no further than the actual opening verse of the Holy Quran as well. But Jazakumullah, thank you for your question and um, look forward to future questions from yourself. Um, we're going to go to our next question, which comes from Sarah Tariq Saiba from the USA. Assalamu alaikum, Sarah Saiba. Jazakumullah for your question. She's been reading various articles um, about Islam and the issue of both adoption and the fostering of children. And she said from some of the articles she's used that in some uh, communities within Islam, for example, adoption is prohibited but fostering is encouraged. And her question is quite a simple one, is can we explain the difference and why, if at all, is adoption prohibited? Because surely taking off an orphan is a positive thing and providing for an orphan's future, or indeed someone whose parents themselves haven't taken responsibility for that child. So Salim Saab, if I could start with you on this. Just the, if we could start with the distinction between what is fostering a child and yes. you know, what is actually adopting a child. Yes, of course. Uh Adoption is a legal concept mm -hmm. and brings with it certain legal duties and responsibilities. Uh, and one of those is that you effectively stand in the position of the, the, the natural parents. Mm -hmm. 
So the child uh, can inherit under the estate of uh, the uh, adopted parents. And they are to all intents and purposes taking the place of the uh, of the parents, the as, of, of the parents. biological parents. Um, fostering, however, does not create the same legal uh, implication or have the same legal responsibilities. Mm -hmm. The purpose of fostering and adoption is, is sometimes parallel in the sense that they are there to make sure that children who would otherwise be without parents or, or, or go through life without parental figures would have someone to look after them. But it's not necessary that it has to be through the vehicle of adoption. Mm -hmm. Now, it is correct that the Holy Quran uh, d d d does not allow adoption. In the, the Holy, in the Holy Quran, Allah the Almighty says that Allah has not made for any man two hearts in his breast, nor has he made those of your wives from whom you keep away by calling them mothers your real mothers nor has he made your adopted sons your real sons. That is merely a word of your mouth. But Allah speaks the truth and he guides to the right path. So adoption per se in its legal sense is, is, is not permitted. But that does not mean, however, that the concept of looking after children in, in, as foster parents is prohibited. In fact, that's encouraged mm -hmm. because Islam places an enormous amount of emphasis on looking after the uh, the, 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 the children who are otherwise bereft of, 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 of parents. So what is not prohibited, and I must make it clear, is the, the benefit. But what is clear is that the adopted children are, are not going to have two parents. They're not going to have their biological parents and their uh, adopted parents, which can, of course, create difficulties in, in later life. Uh, so just to be clear, I suppose, for our question of benefit as well, if a Muslim finds themselves in a situation, they may be without issue they, for various reasons and they, and they wish to adopt a child, an orphan, or indeed, as I said, the, we have situations, unfortunately, where biological parents neglect their own children, don't want to know their own children. Can a Muslim, in the legal context, first of all, and we'll come on to the detail in a moment, actually formally adopt a child? Is that permissible? Well, it may be a question of labels. Mm -hmm. What really matters is the substance of what is being done. Mm -hmm. And if legally, according to the laws of the land, you are adopting a child, but not according to the Islamic uh, rule of, in effect, substituting the original parent, which is, is what's... The, the, that is the mischief behind the, yeah. uh, the, the, the provision. Because in, in, in Arabia, people would take others as, as their own sons. Of course. And that was a custom which the Holy Quran was uh, uh, wiping out, eradicating. Mm -hmm. um, so if the substance is that what you are doing is you are looking after those children in loco parentis, yeah. whether that is by uh, the, the label of adoption or fostering is immaterial, I think. What really matters is what you're doing. Yeah, what you're doing. And what you're doing is, in terms of fostering or, or adoption, if you want to call it that, is not prohibited. And that, I think, is the important point. Action is judged by your intention. Yes. Jazakallah. Uh, Dr. Zaid Saab, this, obviously, fostering in, uh, putting it into, if you like, a practical sense as well, certainly in my own experience, and uh, that when we talked about fostering, it was almost perceived as a transitional element that there were others involved in 
this, you know, looking after this child, and it was almost uh, like a temporary assignment mm -hmm. of guardianship uh, to particular people, whereas adoption was literally taking the responsibility for a child, a neglected child, an orphan child, whatever that, that may be. But Islam also then sets quite specific parameters in terms of, you know, as uh, Salim Saab has just pointed out, for example, the taking of a name that can an adopted child then assume the name and the identity of the adopted parents or the father in this case, can they be entitled to exactly whatever other uh, entitlements are of a biological child? One thing <clears throat> that is quite clear and the Holy Quran makes it clear is that we know that a biological father and an adopted father can never be the same in a scientific sense or any, any other sense that you would like to consider. So that aspect has to be always kept in mind that mm -hmm. there is a certain distance, there is a certain limit, there is a certain criteria that a biological father and an adopted father should not get mixed up in the same breath as it, as it were. So in essence the child, <coughs> excuse me, the adopted child should not take on the name of the adopted father so that there is always something that is the, the society does know about so that there, there is no limits that can be transgressed as far as that, con that connotation is, is concerned. That is, that is important um, because then in Islam the, the, the subject of uh, categories that are prohib prohibited as far as parda concerns, as far as marriage relationship concerns comes into effect in, in that sense. So that is the limit that Islam has put down in essence as far as legally adopting the name of your le uh, adopted father is concerned. So in, <clears throat> apart from that difference, as Salim Saab has said, in practical terms, it is the welfare of orphans, welfare of children that is always of paramount importance in Islam. And adoption or fostering, fostering is something that we see in this society where there is a third party, maybe the local authorities or, or, or some other community authority is, is, is involved and that lays down and keeps tags on things is involved. Whereas in adoption it is the parents who have taken on that responsibility and are, there, are therefore responsible for the welfare of that child. That, that is the important thing. As far as inheritance is concerned, that is an, an interesting issue also because Islam does lay emphasis that the welfare of that adopted child should obviously continue mm -hmm. after perhaps the adopted parents have, have passed on. So the, their bequests in the will are something that should be made for adopted children and that bequest can be one-third of the estate of some of the parents who were adopted. And in many cases that will be greater, that share of one-third will be greater than what the child may have inherited as an automatic heir of that estate. So that takes care of that essence as well. So the spirit is what Islam does look at and looks at very carefully, is that the spirit of welfare of children, welfare of orphans, is something that is promoted in Islam. Mm -hmm. And we see from the life of the Holy Prophet So we don't have to go far to search for an example. We see the life of the Holy Prophet. This was one of his qualities, that uh, when the message was given to him and he was taken to Waraka bin Nofal, he said, how can God leave you when you are the person who looks after the different sections of society, including children and orphans? Mm -hmm. And this was one of his qualities. And we, we know that he adopted Zaid, Hazrat Zaid, Indeed. was a, a companion throughout his life, 
who was adopted by the Holy Prophet and when his natural parents came to, to found him and wanted to take him back and he said how can I leave this person, how can I leave this man who looks after me better than any natural father could have done. So that again brings home to us the fact that in Islam adoption to that uh, to the spirit of the letter, maybe not to the law of the letter, is something that is promoted and encouraged in Islam always. Gentlemen, Jazakumullah <coughs> for that. Uh, an interesting uh, question and of course it's one of those questions which obviously has an Islamic standpoint but very relevant to the world we live in today. Jazakumullah um, also to Sarah Saiba for your question. We're going to stay in North America for our next question, which comes from Wahid Ahmed Sahib in Canada. Assalamu alaikum, Wahid Sahib. Thank you very much for your question. Um, he's referring back to previous Faith Matters programs, Dr. Zaid Sahib, uh, on when we discussed uh, blasphemy laws in Pakistan, which exist. And he was wondering that whilst we dealt with specifically the laws in terms of the detail at that time, that it would be useful to throw light on whether the Pakistani laws of blasphemy have violated international covenants, conventions, and whether the, basically they stand up to international scrutiny. Perhaps if we could start up from the, you know, where, where, where does the Amdiya Muslim community, are blasphemy laws a good thing? Well, you see, blasphemy it, per se itself is defiling or defaming uh, another person's revealed uh, personage, a book, or their institutions is something that Islam does speak against. The Holy Quran actually says that you should not de defile even the uh, idols of idol, idol worshippers mm -hmm. so that they, you do not hurt their sentiments. So as far as that limited uh, perception of what blasphemy is, it is for peace, harmony in society that we should not go around and defaming, defiling people who are respected in different faiths. So that is the crux of the matter, that as per se, blasphemy is, is something that is looked upon by Islam as something that should be stayed clear of and that we should not be falling into that trap. The and that's important. It's a protection of all religions, not just Absolutely. of Islamic sort of, you know, religions or thoughts or edicts. This is talking about protection of all religions, all faiths, all prophets. In a, in a multi-religious society, which we have throughout the world mm -hmm. now, and which we also had during the time of the Holy Prophet ﷺ in Medina, for instance. This was the case that they were Christians, they were Jews, they were, they were idol worshippers. And the recognition of Islam was that you should not defile or defame their personages or their property in, in that respect. So this Islam gives protection, in fact. Islamic society, from the teachings of the Holy Quran and the Holy Prophet ﷺ, gives protection to all religions in all societies at all times. So this is the foundation of what we have, uh, peace and harmony in a multi-religious society as far as that is concerned. The, the blasphemy laws in, in Pakistan predate partition of Indo-Pak as well. However, it is not those blasphemy laws, but the clauses that have been added perhaps between 1980 and 1986, which actually uh, contravene uh, basic human rights of people of different faiths who are living in Pakistan at the moment. And as far as Ahmadis are concerned, we know uh, that the laws that have been promulgated against Ahmadis uh, are, uh, uh, restrict their human rights or do not give the human rights that any citizen 
of any country should have that right in that respect. They're not allowed to call themselves Muslims. They cannot greet each other with the Islamic uh, greetings of peace. They cannot name their houses of worship as mosques. So these are the laws of Pakistan which have been attached to the blasphemy laws that, the, that we know contravene basic human rights of freedom to practice and preach your faith in that society. So this is, this is where blasphemy laws do contravene the laws, international governance as far as that is concerned. Jazakumullah, Dr. Zaid Saab. Salim Saab, um, on this, blasphemy laws, as Dr. Zaid Saab so accurately, principle is good. The application seems to have yes. failed miserably yes. in Pakistan since certainly the yes. amendments were made to the... Absolutely. I, I, if I'm not wrong, and it's a little while since I studied criminal law, but if I'm not wrong, blasphemy still remains on the statute books in this country. Uh, the last recorded prosecution was DPP in Lemon in, in the 60s with the ladies chatted his lover. And, 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 it's going and back that's going back a while. Um, <laughs> But it's still on the statute books. Mm -hmm. um, the problem is that it's a disused piece of legislation mm -hmm. and it's not enforced or enforceable as it is. Um, I, I'm not against blasphemy laws per se because the, the problem we have at the moment is that if someone says something which offends Muslims or Christians or Jews as, an, as, as a group, mm -hmm. there is no recourse in law. You cannot go to the DPP or, 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 or to the Crown Prosecution Service and say, look, um, uh, we want so-and-so to be prosecuted. And if there was mm. such an avenue, then some of the difficulties that we've had in this country uh, may well have uh, been avoided because those people could be prosecuted and, and that would put a stop to it. The problem with Pakistan is that the blasphemy law they have is first of all targeted against um, the Muslims. So it's specifically against one community, against one one community. community yeah. and it's mm -hmm. almost unprecedented mm -hmm. for any legislation in any civilized country to name a group and say you are going to be treated in this way or you do not have these rights. But legislation generally talks about a group of people but here we have been specifically targeted and, and, and that is, is unprecedented anywhere mm -hmm. in any legal system. And, and the other point which I, Hans had eloquently makes is that we, we do not have the very basic rights which are afforded to MD Muslims everywhere else in, in, in civilized countries. So it's, it's the application of, of what you do with the, 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 those laws. Now, it's also a question of motive. What is your motive? Is your motive to try and protect people mm -hmm. against being offended, which is perfectly laudable. No one can complain about that. But if the intention or the motive is to treat one group less favorably <clears throat> then that is not protection that is oppression mm -hmm. and that is where I think Pakistan uh, uh, falls down and that is why it is condemned internationally by all of the, mm -hmm. uh, uh, the, the, the organizations such as Amnesty International and so on when it comes to laws against, uh, uh, against entities. It, it's not so much blasphemy as a principle per se, because I don't think anyone would um, object to the fact that um, we should have protection against very deeply offensive comments. Mm -hmm. Of course, we live in a society, quite rightly, where we have freedom of thought and freedom of expression, and no one... Yeah, and it's sometimes a difficult balance mm. to strike. But it is a difficult yeah. balance. I think in theory it's a difficult balance. I think in reality, when someone 
uh, draws cartoons of the Holy Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam uh, <coughs> with the implication that he's a terrorist, then I don't think in, in, in real terms, in practical terms, mm -hmm. it, it, there's any difficulty. I think the difficulty is in, is in theory, because you have on the one hand those who say, well, we must have freedom of expression. But of course we don't have unfettered freedom mm -hmm. of expression. We have defamation laws, for mm -hmm. example. So um, th there is a, a balance of duty and responsibility um, which the Pakistan laws unfortunately uh, fail yeah, to take so into account. Well, to do. Zakumullah, yes. Salim, the, the other thing that comes to, to mind is what is the punishment Indeed. for, for instance, blasphemy that is prescribed by Islam? And that is the interesting thing and that turns the tables on Pakistan in, the, in that respect. That when we consider the uh, Holy Quran, for instance, talks about it widely that not only the Holy Prophet وسلم, had uh, to put up with blasphemy, but all prophets before him were called liars, were called madmen, were called sorcerers, all sorts of things. Uh, but we do not find a single instance of a punishment that was prescribed by the Holy Prophet وسلم, carried out during his lifetime. And we know that he, he for blasphemy. Was, for, for blasphemy, blasphemy for blasphemy as such um, he was he was pelted he was driven out of, of cities uh, uh, when he went to Medina when he when, when he was the actual Amir the leader in that place Abdullah bin Obeyu the chief of the hypocrites how he addressed him and uh, said that the, the most honored himself describing himself Abdullah bin Obey mm -hmm. as the most honored and the Holy Prophet God forbid as the most meanest mm -hmm. this is how he had, how he talked about him but we find that the Prophet prescribed no punishment because God himself says that we will suffice against this type of blasphemy and it, it is up to God to punish for blasphemy it is not the role of man it is not in the realm of man to carry out punishments for blasphemy and we see that in the example of the Holy Prophet وسلم, the most noblest the most high of all prophets uh, and therefore no government has the power to punish people in respect of blasphemy if that is the criteria that we should use in Islam in any case. So as such if we were to sort of talk about blasphemy laws I mean there's two elements in Pakistan because the it's not only that and the Muslim citizens of Pakistan don't have the rights that others and the Muslims enjoy elsewhere in the world it's also they don't enjoy the rights that every other citizen mm. of Pakistan enjoys um, basic and indeed there would be questions here and we won't go into it today of whether how these amendments to the constitution as they stand today in Pakistan sit within for example the second article within uh, Pakistan's own constitution which guarantees freedom access you know the right to vote the right to representation etc in in every element and sphere of Pakistan society so in effect what saying whilst a, a law is there to protect this is a law in Pakistan in essence to prosecute and, and done with that intent absolutely targeting only one community and targeting them and making it behind the cover of law and it's sad that people who have spoken against blasphemy laws, what has been the outcome of those people? And we have seen in Pakistan of uh, how some politicians spoke against the blasphemy laws and wanting to have these amended. Uh, we have the example of uh, Shabazz Bhatti, who was a minorities minister. Um, he was uh, murdered. Then we have the governor of uh, the Punjab, Salman Tasir. He too was uh, murdered in that respect. Uh, and Muntaz Qadri, the person who actually murdered him, has been hailed as a hero. So this is the sad, sad fact that we have in Pakistan, 
uh, and of course Allah knows and we keep on praying for the betterment of Pakistan that conditions will be made made better not only for Ahmadis but also other minorities and for the whole of Pakistan in their essence in their respect inshallah and indeed there were others also Sherry Rahman who oh, was course, a federal yes. minister who spoke out very strongly and was almost under house arrest mm. by some of these extremists and uh, perhaps at this particular age only the other day we've seen um, you know the young Malala Yousafzai whilst it wasn't specifically on blasphemy mm. but it was the right of a girl to have education in Pakistan and how she was targeted um, um, herself mm. uh, by these terrorists and extremists who seek to use perverse interpretations of Islam <coughs> to justify their own yeah. means. God help them and guide them. But gentlemen, thank you very much and my sincere thanks also to Wahid Ahmed Sahib from Canada for your question. Again, this is one of those questions which I'm sure we could devote uh, an extensive part, if not the whole program to, and I'm sure it's a question we'll return to again, but Jazakumullah for now. Our next question comes from Rashida Khan Saiber from Germany. Assalamu alaikum, Rashida Saiber. Thank you for your uh, question. She's talking about the concept which I'm sure all of us have come across in some shape or form is this whole debate which is taking place around the world but it's also relevant here in Britain on Sharia law. What does it mean? Most recently we've had for example this sort of discussion and debate um, which has been invoked on the wearing of the niqab and by women which is a full face covering um, and there's been a big debate also about Sharia law does it have a place in British society? If so, how it sits with, uh, as our questioner calls it, the British legal system? Um, how does this all balance out? We, we have an eminent judge with us. There's no better place to start. Absolutely. Well, uh, the, the, the term Sharia law, unfortunately, um, sends shivers down the spines. It does. Of many. I, 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 I mean, I often say if one wasn't a Muslim, the perception that it yes. is. Yes. is one, unfortunately, your fear that is created around Absolutely. it. Absolutely. It's like the term jihad, mm -hmm. which for, for, for many centuries uh, w was untouched and then suddenly it has become translated as holy war, mm -hmm. which of course it, mm -hmm. it isn't. And, and the same applies to Sharia law. Sharia mm -hmm. law is, is simply Islamic law, which applies uh, to individuals. It's a form of a code of conduct. It can be, but not necessarily in, in every instance, used as uh, the law governing the country, what you might call secular law. Mm. Now, there are aspects of Sharia law which correspond with uh, national law. Uh, for example, prohibitions on murder, theft and robbery, sexual offences, uh, public disorder and so on and so forth. They are prohibited both by Sharia law and also by most of the, the, the national legal systems in the mm -hmm. Western world. So th there is a very clear overlap. Mm -hmm. There are also areas where Sharia law makes certain prohibitions or rather uh, creates certain prohibitions which are not prohibitions under the, the national law. Uh, adultery is no longer a crime. Mm -hmm. Uh, but is an offence under Sharia law. Um, drinking alcohol is, is, is not an offence in this country, but it's, it's prohibited in Islam, and so on. And then you have a third category where Sharia law applies purely to personal conduct. Mm -hmm. And this is where it gets tricky. Um, on areas such as fasting, prayer, observing codes in relation to telling the truth, being... Uh, 
neighborly and so on. And no one can object to that, but the question is, is how that is to be enforced. Now the difficulty that most people have in this country, I think, is that what they don't want, when you mention the term Sharia law, and I have uh, empathy with them on that point, is that there are certain aspects of Islamic Sharia law which are purely personal. Mm -hmm. they, they cannot and ought not to be enforced by the state. Um, you cannot, for example, enforce the obligation of fasting, mm -hmm. the obligation of prayer. I mean, it, it's not the state's role, even in an Islamic society, to introduce punishment for what are purely personal issues. And the fear of, of many Westerners is that if Sharia law was to be implemented, international mm. law, then certain aspects of which, which, which a free society entitles them to, to do, such as uh, drinking alcohol or having mixing, mixed relationships and that kind of thing, will become penal matters that mm -hmm. they can be sent to prison for mm -hmm. them. Sure. And, 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 and that is an understandable fear because Sharia law was never designed to institute a penal system for personal codes of conduct. Mm -hmm. the, the, the Quranic principle, like Raha Fiddin, there shall be no compulsion in faith, supersedes all of that. So if you have a society or, or, or a nation where there are non-Muslims, it's impossible, I, I think, to enforce Sharia law. Well, that's an important aspect, and there's nothing in the Quran or the <coughs> teachings of the Holy Prophet of Islam, Prophet Muhammad, so peace be upon, that actually said Sharia law should apply to non-Muslims. Absolutely, hmm. right. And because that, again, is sometimes taken to an extreme, unfortunately, yes. even in parts of the Muslim world, where you'll see, for example, prohibitions on the selling of water to yes. young children and non-Muslims, even yes. though the shop is open. But yes. the, in this case, the country has interjected and said, it's Ramzan, it's fasting, so you shouldn't sell yes. water here, to, or a, a young child can't be seen drinking water in public. Because I'm all in favour of respecting local customs. Mm -hmm. And of course, if the local custom is that people are fasting, then it may be appropriate for people to refrain from uh, selling food and drink openly. Yeah. But that respect is very different rather than sort of state uh, Absolutely. edicts coming Absolutely. down. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think it's always important to go back to the practice of the Holy Prophet And his practice, when someone came before him, was to ask, well, what legal system do you want me to ad adopt? If you're a Jew, do you want me to apply Jewish law or do you want me to apply Islamic law? So he would give them a choice. And of course, if you have Sharia law, you don't have that choice. Um, and that, I think, is, is, is fundamentally important, mm -hmm. that, that unless you have a, a, a nation which consists entirely of Muslims and also consists of Muslims belonging to the same community. sect community, mm -hmm. yeah. then it's going to be practically impossible to say, look, you must abide by these conditions. So I, I, I don't think Sharia law is ever intended to, and if I can assuage people's fears, I don't think it's ever expected to take the place of national law, nor indeed should it do so. And the difficulties that the governments have had, where they've tried to implement it, is the problem of enforcing it against non-Muslims. Um, so it, 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 in essence, I, I don't think it can be applicable to national law, and I don't think any attempt should be made to do so. Zakum Salim, so very comprehensive answer, as, as expected, may I add. Um, Dr. Saab, just a final point on that. I mean, here in the UK, we have things like common law. We have canon law, for example, which the, 
and you know indeed the Church of England still plays a significant role in certainly giving its opinion on uh, certain matters of state. Um, if you, for example, even in the House of Lords, we have bishops, 26 odd bishops that still sit there, the Archbishop, who will contribute to debates and discussions and indeed vote on the laws of the country. But you do not see that suddenly in canon law, their prevailing view should become the law of the land. It's, it's a consideration, but it's not something which overrules what is the law of the country. Yes, the same is the case in, in Islam. And although consultation is something that is promoted in Islam, we have consultative bodies who actually carry out these consultations. They are able to give opinions in this respect. But as far as making that part of the law and the only law that is going to be enforceable upon people, that is nothing that Islam actually endorses. And as Salim Sab touched upon this aspect of it is that the Sharia is obviously based on the Holy Quran the Sunnah of the Holy Prophet the Hadith and then interpretation following that. And we have 73 sects in Islam and all have a different interpretation on many aspects of basic Islamic uh, questions. Uh, who is a Muslim for instance, that is something that has not been decided in the 1400 years that have, that have lapsed. Mm -hmm. So which Sharia would you yeah, actually fine. bring into UK for instance mm -hmm. uh, with 73 sects which will be agreeable to all the different sects of Islam in, in that. In, in, so it's a, from a practical point, and as Salim Saab has eloquently described, that this was never intended, and this is not the case in argument. So I think people in the UK should rest assured, rest assured. that this is not going to. Yeah. And Salim Saab, important point, it's the national law, if, as a Muslim, and this applies not just to the mm. Muslim community, as a Muslim, if you're allowed to profess, practice, propagate your faith, and go about your way of life, surely, and Islam, calls for the national law to always be respected yeah, and adhered to. Absolutely. And where there is a conflict, I would suggest that that, is, uh, that takes precedence. Mm -hmm. Say, for example, polygamy. Islam permits the, the, the uh, uh, marriage of more than uh, one woman. Um, some people think marrying one woman is, 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 is polygamy well, as well. But, um, but, <laughs> but the conditions, I mean, just on that, because we'll get a raft of questions. The conditions which are set are the exception rather than the norm. Absolutely. Or the rule, which uh, is sometimes, absolutely. You're, yeah. you're, you're not obliged to yeah. marry more than one, one mm -hmm. woman and uh, have more than one wife. But there is a conflict there between Sharia law uh, permitting mm -hmm. more than one wife and the polygamy laws of this country which prohibit it. And in those circumstances, I would suggest that the national law takes precedence, that you must abide by the law of the land rather than, well, my, my own personal laws permit this, because otherwise it would be a free-for-all yeah, for people indeed. to say, well, look, my religion entitles me to, to do this. It might be against uh, uh, the, 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 the law of the land, um, but I, I'm permitted to do this, and that wouldn't be a very uh, viable defence. Uh, so, yes, the basic principle is obey the law of the land, uh, where that does not cause you to compromise your, your, your principles. If, for example, the law of the land says, well, you can't pray, hmm. then that would be a different issue. Um, but the, the, as far as I'm aware, there's nothing in, in English law which conflicts with the ability to practice uh, as a Muslim. And I think, you know, the, um, the Muslim community, whilst we're all members of it, even in Pakistan, which we talked earlier in another question about blasphemy, the adherence to respect for national law, even when that law has been so vehemently against you. For example, the stopping of the Azan, yes. you know, whilst it's an Islamic 
in injunction and the call to prayer. That is still done in a way which fulfills the community's obligations yes. to a law and a country which is prohibiting its basic religious yes. rights as well. That's so right. I think that should be borne in mind. Gentlemen, again, a, a vast issue, I'm sure, um, and books. I was about to say have been written, uh, will be written about it, but there are many books that have been written about it, this particular subject. But my deep thanks to Rashida Khan Saiber for her question. We're into the sort of last 10, 12 minutes of the program, and we'll go, we'll come back home for our next question, which comes from Rizwan Ahmed Sahib, extends a warm assalamu alaikum to the panel. Um, his question is about the Islamic point of view on politics. And I'd like to know what, which political system and which type of legislation is uh, prescribed by Islam for running a country. And it's this point, normally in meetings, that I would say I declare an interest in the matter. But Dr. Zahid Saab, if I could start with you. Absolutely, Lord Ahmad. I think this was right up your alley, but you've not taken it. You know, Islam does not actively promote one form of uh, uh, system of government as opposed to another but lays down great principles which gives direction as to how we should be, for instance, electing people who are uh, to, to lead us. And then the responsibilities that are laid upon that government are something that are very strictly laid down by Islam. Islam says you should, put, you should give the trusts to those people who are most suited to the task that is before them, rather than have any other um, things that, that you have in mind by, by which you're, sele you're selecting them. So this is the most important thing. So it sounds like, uh, you know, it's a government <coughs> that is for the people is something that is emphasized in, in this respect. So when the, when the people have been put into, into power, they have a certain trust that they have to uh, carry out. And that is what should always be seen as, as important. And in, in, uh, in, in that sense, the uh, justice, absolute justice, is something that comes out of paramount importance, is that those people who are in power should always govern with justice and absolute justice. And the Holy Quran repeatedly speaks of this subject, that you, sh you, you should not let other things get in the way of, uh, of doing justice to whatever trust that is put, being put before you. So this is the most important aspect of governance that Islam lays before us. And this is something that Muslim governments need to realize and carry out their responsibilities in that respect as far as that goes. The other thing that Islam does endorse, we've said before, is consultation. And you should uh, consult widely. The Prophet himself was told this, that you should consult widely with people on matters of importance. And this is what governments are also uh, prescribed to do, is that they should have consultative bodies in that respect, that they should take opinion of a wide range of people so that they're able to make, uh, make these provisions in governing, the in governing the land that they have been put in charge of. So these are important principles that Islam yeah. does talk about in that respect. Jazakumullah, Dr. Zaisab. Salim Saab, just before I move on to the next, this issue of trust and making someone a custodian of trust yes. is an important one within Islam. But Islam also stresses the importance of participation within elections as well, that yes. you, know, you choose someone and you, because that's something that has been entrusted to you, which is to go yes. out and actually vote. Absolutely, and, and Zaisab so touches on a very important point, which is that, that absolute justice is the bedrock 
Interestingly, in the recent Pakistan elections, all of the political parties spoke of an independent judiciary. And of course, none of them will actually implement it, one suspects. But uh, that is the absolute re minimum requirement that you, you, you have justice as a starting point. And justice starts from the concept of a trust. Um, the trust that is placed in the trustees, that is people who are mm -hmm. running the country politically or judicial, making judicial decisions, have a responsibility to ensure that that trust is not breached, that they fulfill their obligations under that trust. They mustn't make a secret profit. They mustn't uh, try and use the, 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 the trust for their own There's benefit. proper accountability. Absolutely. Uh, it, it is accountability. Mm -hmm. And the beneficiaries under the trust must leave the trustees to get on with the job. They mustn't interfere, um, but they must remain beneficiaries. And, and, and that is the bedrock of, of, of the, both the legislative systems and the judicial systems, which uh, are in operation in countries where it works. Um, where it doesn't work is where you have this abuse of trust. Indeed. Where either the trustees abuse the trust by hanging on to power or in breach mm -hmm. of, of the responsibility that is entrusted to them, uh, or where the beneficiaries seek to uh, expel them unfairly. Um, so the, the, the Holy Quran, in, in one very short but very powerful uh, sentence, explains the bedrock of the principles by which legislation and, 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 and government should take place. That the people to whom you repose that trust are the best people for the job. And interestingly, the, 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 the Lord Chancellor's Department or the Ministry of Justice now advertises we will employ or we will appoint according to uh, merit. Yes. The best person for the for job. The job. Um, and I think the important principle and I think sometimes when people look at Islam and the injunctions that Islam or the principles Islam lays down, it's an unfortunate for some parts of the Muslim world. But if we look at our own democracies, some prevailing democracies across the Western hem, the West as it is called, the, the same principles of social welfare, you look of community, of charity, of an independent judiciary, an accountable legislative body, an accountable government, uh, a government that leaves office when it's supposed to and yes. when it's lost. Um, th these qualities we find prevailing in the countries of the West, as they are yes. called, rather than the countries who seek to uphold yes. the banner of Islam. And uh, uh, again, people should reflect appropriately on that. I'm always yes. reminded of uh, John Major once said famously when he lost the election in 97, how remarkable he found it and how quickly, as soon as the result had come through and uh, uh, his immediate security scarf, his entourage, just, he said, <laughs> just disappeared. Yes, disappeared. <laughs> and he became a, no a normal citizen or an MP. He was still yes. an MP, but he was uh, just a member of parliament as opposed to prime minister. Well, the interesting thing is, I don't know whether it's still the case, but when prime ministers used to go to the Queen to, um, to, to, to say, well, you know, we we're now relinquishing office because someone else has come into place, they would take or be taken in the government car. Mm -hmm. but. Because they were no longer the Prime Minister after the Queen's visit, they no longer had a car to go back home in. They were not um, made to walk back. They, but, I mean, that is an encapsulation, I think, mm -hmm. of the true Islamic principle of trust. That you, you had your position, mm -hmm. yeah. it's now gone, yes. and you move on. And, and, and unless we realise that that is the way forward, 
And I'm afraid certain, uh, certain so-called Islamic nations will, will fail to, 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 to progress. Lesson to be learned. <coughs> Gentlemen, Jazakumullah, my thanks also to Rizwan Saab for his question. Um, in the last sort of few minutes of the program, I will try and squeeze in another question which comes from Nasser Mahmoud Saab from Canada. Um, he talks about technology and its advancements happening very rapidly, Dr. Zaid Saab. And he said, according to Islamic teachings, are there any limits set or indeed an end date to this kind of advancement? Simple answer, no. Uh, because the uh, progress that man has made and continues to make falls within the plan of Allah the Almighty. And this is what man has been told. And the Holy Prophet also has told that man continues to progress throughout his own personal life and from the cradle to the grave, one should be seeking knowledge and making progression. Also, the Holy Quran speaks of that man has been endowed with tremendous capabilities. And that is how man continues to progress in all spheres. And this we have seen in our own eyes. And there can be no end to that because Allah the Almighty is infinite and his bounties are limitless. So in that respect, man continues to progress and continues to reap the benefits and blessings of those bounties that are limitless. So progression will continue and Allah's design is such in put in place. And there's always and no limit set. Just as a final word on that, I suppose a degree of personal reflection to Liam Saab on this. I, I was minded, I was recently uh, speaking on uh, Dr. Abdul Salam, uh, the Pakistani Nobel laureate, eminent uh, scientist, of course, who belonged to the community who always said that um, when he found the limits of science sort of closed in on him, he then all, always, he found the Holy Quran to provide the answer, which knew no parameters. Yes, absolutely. And uh, quite often in faith, uh, people say there's a conflict between uh, science and faith, and faith obviously provides the answer to many a problem. Well, the, the Holy Quran um, speaks of the desire to acquire knowledge and, it, and, and urges us to reflect in more verses than any other subject. Mm -hmm. So the subject of, of encouraging people to reflect, to acquire knowledge, to learn, to observe the universe is a subject which uh, it receives the greatest coverage in the Holy Quran uh, than, than any other. Um, but of course, no, we, we can never advance. The more we learn, the more we realize how little we know. And with that, we come to the end of today's program. I would like to thank our panelists and say Jazakumullah to them for their very detailed and scholarly answers on an array of questions on a variety of different issues. And if you haven't found the answer to your question, you know what to do. Email us on faithmatters at voiceofislam.co.uk.